Grab a roadie and your barber jacket, cause we're headed out of the swells. We know each other well enough by now, but please remember that adults who use adult language told me these terrifying tales. These ghost stories aren't for kids. Stay tuned after the story for a bunch of Patreon thank yous and a semi-update about Claire's Audible release. Now, pack your wool socks, L.O. Bean duck boots, and Patagonia vest because we're off to live free or die land. Our neighbor, Brian Keaton, lives in Wellesley, but his encounter occurred on an ill-fated hike up Mount Washington. Here's Out of the Swell's ghost story, number six. I gotta say, it was a bad plan from the start. I climbed several steps to the side porch of the cottage-style home. Though it was only around 5.30, the gray cloud-muted daylight was rapidly fading. The home's weathered shingles were a faded brown, turned even darker by the rain that had saturated them over the past few days. I peeked in through the side door, its pretty window a decoration of clear and frosted glass. Beyond it, the dimly lit kitchen looked inviting and warm. I was about to raise my hand to knock when I heard a car pull into the driveway behind me. I turned and saw a black SUV parking in front of the detached garage. I waved before shoving my hands down into the pockets of my raincoat, defense against the chill that had finally descended over New England after a relentlessly hot summer. Hey, Brian called happily as he bound up the steps to give me a bear hug. Hop in there, he insisted, pushing open the porch door. Sorry, I got caught up at a client's. I slid off my sneakers and threw my coat on a hook by the door as Brian flipped light switches. What's Chris's ETA? He asked happily. He's shooting for 6.30, I said. Man, it's been way too long since we've hung out. Agreed, I replied, smiling. I'm glad I didn't lose you guys in the divorce, Brian replied with forced cheer. I waved the comment away with a hand. Wild horses couldn't drag us from you. I reassured him. I'm just sorry we haven't seen each other more over the years. No apologies necessary. Life is crazy with these kids. How are the boys doing? Good. They're good. They hate splitting time between our houses, but what can you do? Brian shrugged. It's Teddy's first year at the high school. That's impossible, I said, feeling guilty. The last time I'd seen the boys, they'd been toddlers. And Jack? Sixth grade. Your girls? First, pre-K and daycare, I listed. I hope we don't look as old as we sound. Well, I certainly don't, I joked. You still hitting the sauce? He asked, walking over to the refrigerator. I nodded, and he retrieved glasses from their undermount beneath the kitchen cabinets and poured us each a wine glass. We sat in wooded stools at the kitchen island, and Brian agreed to allow me to record our conversation with my digital recorder. The house is beautiful, I said, meaning it. An architect, Brian's style leaned towards modern farmhouse. Exposed beams, clean white subway tile, framed vintage maps, and cozy furniture created a Joanna Gaines-esque haven. It was one of the things Melissa and I fought hardest about. She loves shiny metal and glam. I hate that shit. I'm so sorry you guys split up. Brian shrugged. 
What's done is done. Enough of that. You're here for a scary story, and I know we gotta wrap it up before Chris gets here, yeah? For sure, I said, remembering how much I like Brian and his laid-back manner. I ordered sushi. Should get here around the same time as Chris. Thank you. That sounds great, I said. You want anything to eat now? No, no. The wine's all I need. Brian, Chris, and I worked at the same commercial real estate company way back when we were in our early 20s. The place was flush with money and brokers looking to spend it. Our co-workers threw epic Christmas parties and even rented out an entire club one year for Halloween. We all lived in the back bay at the time. Brian, with his now ex-wife, Melissa, were newly married, and the four of us would often grab drinks together on Thursday nights. It was so fun and so out of touch, and when I look back, I can barely recognize the people we were. But seeing Brian brought back a tide of vivid memories. He and Melissa had been the perfect couple. I could picture the night they told us they were expecting. We were at a client cocktail party, and Melissa ordered a soda water with lime. We knew immediately. As luck would have it, our families landed in the same town. Job changes in real life caused us all to grow apart, but we had run into each other here and there, each time pledging to grab dinner and catch up some night. And then Chris heard through a mutual friend that the Keatons were getting a divorce, and though I hadn't truly known the couple for years, I insisted that it must be a cruel rumor. I could still see them in my mind's eye at our Thursday night dive bar, holding hands and laughing. But it was true, and I pushed Chris to reach out to Brian to check in and offer moral support. Melissa and I had coffee one morning this past summer, and I immediately saw the change in her. She'd fallen down the hole of competitive suburban bullshit. She sprinkled names of other competitive Wellesley women and casually dropped both her past and future vacation locales into the conversation. Not once did she ask after Chris, and she only inquired about the ages of our kids to find out whether or not we had any shared social ties. Chris reported back that Brian hadn't changed a bit, still as jovial and generous as we'd remembered. Brian invited us to his new house. Liz has that blog, yeah? I have a story for her. You guys should come over to dinner, he'd suggested. Chris, not wanting to hear our old friend's scary story, but knowing it was unfair to keep it from me, suggested that he give us time for an interview before meeting up for dinner. So is this house haunted? I asked Brian, pointing at the countertop. From behind me, I heard a drawn out, yes. I spun around as Brian answered my question. Thank God, no. No, the thing I'm going to tell you about happened in New Hampshire while I was camping with friends. What's up? He asked. You okay? Um, sure. Yes, I'm fine. I just thought I heard something. Um, have you read my blog? I asked. Brian sucked Aaron through his teeth. Sorry to say, I haven't. I've never been able to handle scary stuff, but I know Melissa read a couple of your stories. Oh, no, no need to apologize. I know it's not for everyone. I just wondered if you were familiar with the interview format, I said half relieved that he hadn't read stories and appeared to have no idea about my newfound ability to hear dead people. Basically, you tell me your story and I sit here listening and get creeped out and say annoying things like, nope and uh-uh. Got it. I can do that. 
Brian sat in his seat, his hand shoved between his knees. So should I just start? I nodded, completely freaked out by the hiss of a voice I'd heard moments before, but not wanting to frighten my old friend. Hold on, Brian declared, slapping a hand on his knee, causing me to almost jump up onto the kitchen island. Do you ever write stories that don't happen in Wellesley? My story happened on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Damn it, why didn't I mention that before? Oh, I breathed, my heart racing. Absolutely. A scary story is a scary story, right? Brian blew out a breath. Yeah, and this one was pretty frightening. To me, at least. I'm sure you have a higher threshold, but it's been, well, it's just been a lot. I can't wait to hear what happened, I encouraged, scanning the room and trying not to be obvious about it. Recently, I'd begun to be able to sort of cast my hearing out, if that makes any sense. It's a way of making myself available to anyone with a message. Conversely, I'd also been working on closing up shop where this otherworldly hearing was concerned. That was more difficult, especially if I wasn't completely focused on it. Like if I was in the middle of a conversation, or tired and distracted, or in the middle of a task, which was basically all the time. So, as I listened to Brian, I opened myself up and cast out my hearing. Even though all was silent, I was on edge. That hiss had come from someone or something in the house, and I was certain it wouldn't be the last thing it had to say. Shoot, Brian breathed. All right, here I go. So, it all started with a camping trip last fall. I went up to Mount Washington with a couple buddies, Brian began. Something we'd done together, I'd say, at least ten times, but this time... Brian looked down at his lap and shook his head. I gotta say, it was a bad plan from the start. First off, it was far too last minute to safely plan a hike that time of year. The weather turns on a dime up there, and we were right up against the end of the season. But Mike emailed us Thursday afternoon to tell us he scored a reservation at the dungeon. Wait. I said, holding back a laugh. Great name, huh? Brian's eyes crinkled with his smile. It's a hiker refuge in the basement of the AMC's Lakes of the Clouds hut. Sounds dreamy, I commented with a grimace. What's the AMC? Uh, Brian looked at the ceiling, obviously trying to recall what the abbreviation stood for. The Appalachian Mountain Club. Got it. And the hut dungeon? Huh, yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. The fall had been rainy, so the place was extra rank. Luckily, Paul, my other buddy, has a severe mildew allergy. He took one look in there and nixed the plan. Brian considered for a moment. At the time, I was psyched that we had to find alternative shelter, but had we stayed there, none of this would have happened. It was freezing and getting close to evening, so we needed to set up camp ASAP. We'd trekked up the Tuckerman Ravine, and we were pretty beat. I was ready to get a fire and dinner going. I've always wondered about Mount Washington. What's the hike like? I asked. Is it difficult? Brian considered. Uh, no, it's moderate. Takes about three or four hours, depending on how fast you climb, how many stops you make, I'd say it's about four and a half miles, give or take. We have different definitions of moderate, I commented. Brian looked down at his lap with a smile. 
Maybe I'm downplaying it a bit. In the summertime, well, actually just in July and August, it's a good day's hike. June and September, the bookends, eh, you're probably going to see some ice. The rest of the year, though, you're taking your chances. Those mountains have teeth. There's a lot of ways they can kill you. Hypothermia is its softest trick, but it can be just as deadly as a bear attack, he said seriously. I laughed nervously at his remark, expecting him to crack a smile. He didn't. Have you been up there? He asked. Not the actual mountain, but we've taken the girls to Brenton Woods the past couple of years to go skiing. Brian beamed. You've already got him on skis? That's great. Well, Max is into it, but the boots have been a real barrier to entry for Joey. We'll see how it goes this season, I laughed. But we've stayed in the Mount Washington Hotel every time. Love that place. I even saw a huge black bear from the porch. It was amazing. Brian nodded. Melissa and I took the kids there a couple times when they were little. It's a great place for a family vacation. Faintly, I heard a woman's voice say, He's better off. I fought to keep my expression neutral. The voice I'd heard had become a familiar one, one that had been commenting on my life and the people around me more and more frequently. Getting back onto sure footing, I said, So you guys made it up the mountain, and your accommodations weren't exactly up to your gold standard. What did you end up doing? Well, that was tricky. The general AMC rule is that you can camp anywhere that's 200 feet from a trail or water source, quarter mile from any established campsite or shelter, and is not above the tree line. And on top of those guidelines, there are several areas that have special protection, where there's no camping allowed, yeah? And Tuckerman Ravine happens to be one of those protected areas. Did you have to hike much further to set up camp? You must have been exhausted. Brian looked at me with a mischievous smile. There aren't too many people up there that time of year, enforcing the rules. We were respectful, of course, but we didn't kill ourselves playing by the book. I think it was Mike who spotted the narrow trail. The weather was turning again. We needed to get beneath the tree line and set up camp before the rain hit. It had drizzled some on the climb, but at that point, we knew we had to get a fire going before the rain killed our chances. We found Crawford Path, which took us past the Lakes of the Clouds. I'd seen the lakes before, but that storm rolling in was black and the wind had picked up. It looked so choppy and mad that if the Loch Ness Monster had poked its head out of the water, I wouldn't have been surprised. Sounds like the stage was perfectly set for a good scare, I commented. Brian gave a small smile. I'll never forget that walk to the campsite. Mike leading the way, Paul behind him, me bringing up the rear. It's the order in which we're all affected. Weird, huh? What do you mean? Brian drew in a breath. Mike's gone. Paul won't walk again after the crash, and my marriage is over. God, it ruined me. Brian, you're not ruined, I said sadly. I'm so sorry. My old friend was silent. I could tell he was holding it together as best he could. I stood, went to the refrigerator for the wine, and refilled our glasses. I clinked my glass into his and took a sip. I'm sorry we weren't there for you. Brian took his own sip. You're here now. Sorry to be such a downer. Seeing Chris brought up so many happy memories, and seeing you... He took another gulp of wine to save himself from having to speak. Tell me what happened to your friends, I said, wishing Chris were there with us. 
He always knew the proper Midwestern thing to say to a grieving person. Brian smiled sadly. Mike died last spring, only a couple months after that night on the mountain. He used to skate once in a while in a league, and he had a brain aneurysm during a hockey game. Died right on the ice. Left behind three little kids. Then Paul, God, he's lucky he's even alive. He was an orthopedic surgeon at Beth Israel and was heading home real late from call, and he must have been way overtired. Poor guy was driving with his lights off. A tractor-trailer sideswiped him on the pike, slammed him right into the guardrail. I've seen photos of the car. It doesn't look like anyone could have survived, but the amount of pain that guy's had to endure, I know sometimes he wishes he didn't survive. Compared to them, I sound like I got off scot-free, but when I found those texts on Melissa's phone, Liz, it was like a knife to my chest. I thought I was having a heart attack. Jesus, Brian, I breathed. We didn't tell anyone. I didn't want it to get back to the kids. She was in a serious relationship with a trainer she met at Orange Theory. Fucking fuck, I breathed in the least helpful, most un-Midwestern way. Fucking fuck, Brian mimicked. He shook his head as though shaking bad thoughts away. Mike's dead. Paul lost the ability to walk and to do his job, and my wife left. The thing hit us all where it hurt the most. Took Mike from his kids, stole Paul's career, killed my marriage. What the hell happened on that mountain? I breathed. Be careful, the familiar voice whispered to me. I closed my eyes and gave a small shake of my head. Well, we followed the main trail down under the tree line, and just as it was starting to rain again, Mike spotted the path. We figured we'd hike on a bit into the woods, far enough at least to be able to say we made an effort on the off chance a ranger came by to make sure we weren't disregarding the guidelines. The forest up there is craggy, yeah? The ground is rocky and the trees are tough, like they've put up a good fight to claim their spot. It's pretty, but it took some searching to find the right spot to set up camp. We found a small clearing near an arrangement of huge boulders. It gave us some good coverage from the wind. It looked like a good spot, yeah, but it didn't feel right. And right away, Mike tripped over a tree root and sliced his forehead open on one of those boulders. Paul carried a first aid kit and put a couple butterfly strips across the cut, but he said Mike would probably need stitches to really close it up. I did my best to get the fire going while Paul tried to get the wound to stop bleeding, but what I really wanted to do was get us packed up and head down off the mountain. But we were losing daylight, quickly. So I built a fire in front of the boulders, and we arranged our tents around it in a semicircle. You guys had tents even though you thought you'd be staying in that hut dungeon? I asked. Yeah, Brian laughed. I think we all knew deep down that wasn't going to work out. The tents are small, yeah, not a big deal to lug. And then everything basically went to shit. I tweaked my back, slipping in the mud while I was gathering firewood. Paul twisted his ankle pretty badly, trying to see if he could climb up on top of those boulders. It was a stupid thing, but Brian shrugged. You know, there wasn't much to do, and the weather turned. We each brought part of the meal. Mike, beer, Paul, hot dogs, me, chili. Melissa packed it for us. We sat close to the fire and tolerated the freezing rain for as long as we could, but it was brutal. I could tell Mike's head was killing him. I needed to lie down to rest my back, and Paul kept leaning over to rub his ankle. We were all pretty beat up, so we finally gave in and retreated to the tents for the night. 
Soaking wet, though, I commented with a shiver. It wasn't that bad, Brian insisted. If you've got good gear, you barely feel it. Yeah, right, I said doubtfully. Maybe it was a little damp, he admitted, but we were all fried. I fell asleep to the rain beating on my tent. It was so loud I wouldn't have known if there had been an explosion outside. But then I woke up with a start at two o'clock. It stopped raining and the forest was quiet. It was disorienting. I didn't know what had woken me up. And, well, I admit, it was freezing. I was lying there trying to warm up and will myself back to sleep when I heard a twig snap outside of my tent. I listened for a moment, but then I realized I was holding my breath. Guys, I called in a low voice, hoping it was just one of them coming back from taking a leak. Neither of them answered, but then I heard this huff from right next to my head. It was like... You know how a bull will huff air through its nose? Yeah. I mean, I can imagine it from seeing it on TV, I said. Right, just like that. And it was right outside the tent near my head. I immediately thought, oh fuck, it's a bear. Grabbed my cell phone as quickly as I could from my vest pocket and found our group text. Bear, I wrote to the guys. Paul wrote back immediately, keep still. As the texts were sent and received, we heard Mike's phone ding. He hadn't put the damn thing on silent. More twigs snapped as whatever was outside my tent followed the noise towards Mike's tent. I slid out of my sleeping bag as quietly as I could and grabbed my knife from my backpack. I lifted my hand to start sliding the zipper down on the tent when the thing growled, low and long. I froze and held my breath. My phone lit up with text seconds later and I flipped it over so the light wouldn't show. More twigs snapped. The animal was walking around our campsite, checking it out. I snuck a glance at my phone. Not a bear, Mike contexted. I sent back a couple question marks. Bigger, he wrote back. Brian ran a hand through his hair, then picked up his wine glass. I wish I could tell you that I'd done something brave, yeah. But I just sat in my tent cowering, praying that whatever was outside would just leave. Crazy thing was, that's just what it did. It huffed around the campsite for about, God, I think it was at least 10 minutes. We were texting back and forth the whole time. All the while, Mike was insistent that we not go outside. Just stay put, he kept writing, whenever Paul or I would suggest trying to scare the thing away. At one point, the thing slammed itself against Paul's tent and he screamed. I don't blame him. I'm pretty sure I screamed too after I heard him yell. I'll tell you, at that moment, I thought that was it. That the thing would go after Paul and we'd have no choice but to try and kill it with our useless knives. But nothing happened. The thing didn't react and that's when I started to get really scared. We were sitting ducks. It was like it was toying with us. But it was only a matter of minutes before we heard it plod back down the trail away from the campsite. We texted each other and agreed to wait until we were really sure it was gone. Mike had a slight view of the path and he said he'd peeked out when he felt the thing was far enough away and saw its back. What was it? He didn't know. He wouldn't describe it to us. He just kept saying it was big, too big. Wait, I said, holding up my hand. Is this a Bigfoot story? I asked, cracking a smile. Brian let out a bark of laughter. No, 
I wish it were. He shook his head, smiling sadly. But no, it's not a Bigfoot story. Oh, bummer, I said. So what did you guys do? Did you just pack up right then and leave? God, no, Brian said forcefully. We would have had to take the same path we just listened to it clomp on down. Besides, that heavy rain from earlier in the night had created a film of ice over everything. It would be treacherous getting down the mountain in the daylight, let alone in the middle of the night. So we decided to take shifts, to really get the fire going again, and for one of us to stay up and keep a lookout. I volunteered for the first shift. I couldn't stand the idea of getting back into my tent and not being able to see what was around me. I stayed up from around 2.30 until a little after 4, when I started to get scared I'd fall asleep and get hypothermia out there. I woke Paul up, and he sat up until 5.30, then Mike got the last shift. I guess the sun had come up a little before 7. Later, Mike told us he'd planned to let us sleep for a little longer, let the sun defrost the trail a bit before we broke camp. Right before the sun was up, Mike said he heard something coming down the path towards us, clomping along loudly, just like that thing had done the night before. He stood up and strained to see what was coming. He was about to yell and wake us up when something came into view. Brian was squinting his eyes, looking out the window over his kitchen sink, not really seeing his home but remembering the mountain. He put his wine glass down on the countertop and said, It was a little boy, a little boy in overalls and a long-sleeved t-shirt, and no shoes. What? That's what Paul and I said when Mike told us what he'd seen, Brian said. We were like, what are you talking about? But Mike swore that what he saw was a little boy, about five or seven years old, with dark black hair that had been slicked back as though it were wet. The voice behind me whispered, See? Chilled, I ignored her and tried to focus on Brian's story. So Mike said he watched the boy walk slowly down the trail towards our campsite, and he told us that he was more frightened than he'd ever been in his life, but he tried to convince himself that the boy might be lost and need help. He called out to him, Hey, buddy, you okay? But the boy didn't respond. Paul said he woke up when he heard Mike call out, Kid, are you lost? Mike started walking towards the boy, not wanting him anywhere near the camp, but knowing how ridiculous it was to be frightened of a child. He talked to him the whole while, but the kid wouldn't answer him. They were about 15 feet apart when the boy stopped and knelt down on the ground. Mike said he sort of crouched down and hit his head in his knees. At that point, Mike figured the boy was in real trouble. People do crazy things when they're in the late stages of hypothermia, yeah? They hit a point when they start taking off their clothes because they start to actually feel hot, even though they're freezing to death. We need to get you over to the fire, kid. Come on. Mike told him. He bent down to touch the boy on the shoulder, and that's when the kid growled at him. That same low growl that we'd all heard the night before. He jumped back, screamed, and by the time Paul had gotten out to see what was going on, the boy had disappeared. Just like that, he was gone. Paul heard the growl, too. At first, we tried to explain the whole thing away as some sort of a hallucination brought on by Mike being freezing cold and sleep-deprived, but if it were Mike's hallucination, then... How could Paul have heard the growl? When I came out of my tent, they were both standing there, staring out into the woods. He was just here, man, right there, Mike was saying, pointing to the ground. They caught me up to speed, and we decided to just break camp and hike out of there as fast as we could. 
whatever was happening was bad news. If it was some prank by another hiking group, then we didn't want anything more to do with it. And if it was something big and hulking that could look like a boy and disappear into thin air, then we really wanted nothing to do with it. It took way too long to get off the mountain. The ground was slick with melting ice, and Paul's ankle slowed us down. I wasn't doing much better. I basically had to will myself not to let my back completely seize up until we got back to the car. We didn't talk much on the hike down, but I tell you, our heads were on a swivel. I shook my head and rolled the stem of my wine glass between my fingers, thinking, What do you think was up there? I was hoping you could tell me, Brian said. Geez, I don't know. If I had to guess, then I'd bet it was some sort of a shapeshifter, maybe an elemental, you know, like an earth spirit. But why do you think it had anything to do with all the trouble that's happened since? We didn't talk about it after we came back. We came to a silent agreement that it would be best if we didn't think about it anymore. Yeah, but the day before Mike's accident, the day before he died, he texted Paul and said, I think I figured it out. That kid, the one I saw in the woods. I saw him today. Someone must have been pranking us. Someone who knew we were camping up there and had their kids with them on the hike. It was reassuring. Even started to be funny. Like, hey man, someone really got us. Next level scared the shit out of us up there. We texted all day trying to figure out who we knew that might have pranked us like that. I smiled but shook my head slightly. I know. Brian said quietly. We were grasping at straws, but what choice did we have? The idea that Mike was seeing the kid from the mountain was too upsetting to contemplate, and then Brian cleared his throat. Mike had that aneurysm that night, and Paul and I didn't talk about the boy again until he called a couple months later and asked if I remembered our last text chain with Mike. He wanted to know if I thought it was possible that Mike had actually seen the kid from the mountain. I asked him why, and he beat around the bush a while, yeah, but... Finally, he said he'd been seeing a kid the last few days that looked a lot like the one Mike had described on the mountain. And then he had his accident, I guessed. Brian nodded. What about you? When did you see him? Right before you found out about Melissa? I never saw him, Brian said simply. But then, I mean, you're sure your divorce was this kid or whatever the thing was? You're sure that it was his fault? Yeah, I have no doubt. Melissa never would have. But Brian was interrupted by a very loud knock at the door, which of course startled us both. Actually, I was so startled, I just missed knocking my wine glass onto the floor. Hello, Chris boomed, letting himself in the house. Hey, man he said cheerily to Brian before giving me a kiss on the cheek. You guys look like you've seen a ghost, he joked. Must have been quite the story. A glass of wine was poured for Chris, dinner arrived, and we talked about less frightening things. After we'd each had a cup of coffee, we cleared the table, said our thanks, and began the process of saying goodbye to our old friend, all of us promising to stay in closer touch. I don't want to be an annoying old lady, but can we say hello to Jack before we go? I asked sliding into my rain jacket. Oh man, he won't be home for another hour, if you can believe it. Hockey practice. Oh, well then how about Teddy? I asked. You need to leave, the familiar voice whispered in my ear. I shook her off. Brian smiled. He's staying at Melissa's tonight. 
Confused, I began to ask a question, but stopped myself. What? Brian asked, his smile fading. It's just... I looked at Chris apologetically. There was a boy in the kitchen when I came up to the house. I was just about to knock when you pulled in the driveway. The color drained from Brian's face. Maybe I was mistaken, I said, knowing that I hadn't been. Chris was looking back and forth between us, first in confusion and then with growing concern. What did he look like? Brian asked with forced cheer. Maybe one of the boys had to stop back home for something. I hesitated. I couldn't really see him all that well. He was just a boy with dark hair, like yours. No, Brian breathed. What's wrong? Chris demanded. No, stop. We're just wound up from your story. I'm sure you're right. One of the boys must have forgotten something and came home to pick it up, I reasoned. The boy had dark hair, Brian asked. Reluctantly, I nodded my head. Our boys are towheads, like Melissa. Well, I'm waiting for Claire to be approved for release by Audible. And as with everything else tied to this podcast, I am stumbling and bumbling my way along through the process. But I promise to let you know as soon as I get word that Claire is available on Audible. My fingers are crossed that it will release within the week. A sincere thanks to Michelle Roth, Katie O'Dwyer, Beth Bayer, Kathy Robinson, Steve Cobb, Nan Gardner, Friday Valentine, Sarah Miller, Lauren May, Ashley, and Camille P. for your incredibly generous support on Patreon. I truly appreciate it. This has been Out of the Swells. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight. <laughs>